Welcome to Comic Sans, the podcast about comics for those who are sans knowledge. I'm Yen, a comic book fan, enthusiast, reviewer, occasionally writer. And I'm Nat. And I am of the opinion that mayonnaise has no place being in a breakfast sandwich. I've never heard anyone express this opinion in my life, and I hope I never hear it again. Welcome. <laughs> As Yen says, this is Comic Sans. Yen, who is a fan of comic books, is going to talk to me, who is not a fan about comic books, and try to convince me to get into them. That's exactly it, Ned. Wonderful summary. Incredible summary. I've been told by our producer that I'm too mean. So today, I'm going to be very nice. But it's all going to be very cutting. <laughs> I feel like that's worse. I'm scared now. I'm so glad that you're scared, Ned. I'm so glad. Was that nice? Is that how this works? <laughs> so last episode, Yen made me read Saga. And I have to say, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm interested to, to hear what you have in store for me this week, Yen. So Nat has professed. The big part of the reason he can't get into comic books is because so, he's so scared. He's such a frightened little baby of all these big old comic books and the big numbers that come after them. You know, he can't count that high. So he's really stressed out. When he sees, you know, Spider-Man 12. Oof. So much so much for being nice, huh? <laughs> yeah, like that went out the window real fast. <laughs> real fast. <laughs> so Nat's so scared of superheroes. So today I'm going to make him confront his fears. I'm quaking. I am quaking in my metaphorical boots. And today we are going to be talking about the one, the only, the amazing, the spectacular, your friendly neighborhood, Spider-Man. Yes. Okay, I'll be honest. I mean, I'm, I'm not into comic books, but I do, like any regular media consuming human being, you know, I do watch the movies, the, the Marvel movies, and I don't watch all of them. I've not watched most of the Iron Man ones and the Thor ones and whatever, but I have watched all the Spider-Man ones because of all of the superheroes that I know not much about, he is the one that I know the most about. So I'm, ex I'm glad that you picked that one. Well, this is about to be very interesting then. This is about to be very interesting. Nat, Yen, tell me everything you know about Spider-Man. Everything? With good reason, within good reason. Now that I know that you've watched most of the movies, this yeah. question may be a little void, but let's hear it. Let's hear it. I think I know the basic information. I mean, you know, a kid gets bit by a spider, develops powers in some versions of the story. These powers include being able to shoot webs. In some versions, he constructs a web machine, you know, and then he lives life as a friendly neighborhood swinging Spider-Man. As you've pointed out, right? you know all of this from the movies. Yes, all from the movies. Because Spider-Man at this point has had nine movies, nine solo movies, right? Um, including Into the Spider-Verse. And we're not talking about the Avengers movies in which he's in, right? Just Spider-Man movies, nine. And that's why everybody knows a little bit about Spider-Man through cultural osmosis, mm. right? It just enters your bloodstream. You exit the womb, you enter the world, and you know about Peter Parker. It's true. What's the catchphrase? Do you know what the catchphrase is for Spider-Man? Let me test you. With great power comes great responsibility. Thank you for saying it like Uncle Ben as he's dying. That is exactly what I was going for, so I'm really glad that came through. <laughs> Wonderful tribute to a great man. Now, um, I'm going to take you on a little thought experiment. Man. I'm ready. I want you to imagine a different time. Okay. A time before those nine movies before Toby, before Andrew Garfield, before Tom Holland. I want you to imagine the mysterious era of the year 2000. It's a wasteland. You've got a flip phone. You're five years old. And you are 
dying. Imagine this for me. Imagine you are dying to get into comic books. And so you, little net, waddling around by yourself like that Netflix show with the Japanese kids, <laughs> go into a comic book store. And the only Spider-Man issue you can find on the stand is Spider-Man 441. And you're looking at that stand. And as previously established, you can't count. And you're looking at that and you're like, that's a crazy number. What is that? Nine? Is that bigger than nine? How am I going to find the rest of it? And so you leave the store empty-handed. In that year, year 2000, you are one of thousands of potential fans that Marvel cannot grab a hold of because comic books are too convoluted, too complex, and most importantly, they're a little out of date. Because even if you do want to start at Amazing Spider-Man 1, that's like 1968. When Peter Parker in 1968 was a high schooler, he was going to malt shops and getting milkshakes. But the people who read him then... In the 70s and the 80s, they grow up with him. They, you know, Peter Parker graduates from high school. He becomes a young photographer. He becomes a scientist. And so Peter grows a little bit with those people who have been reading Spider-Man through those years. But the kids of the 90s, the kids like you, they've got no Peter Parker on the page for them. There's a couple cartoons, one with a killer theme song that I will do my rendition of so we don't have to do the copyright claims. You know, I already lost it. I already lost it. <laughs> All you need to know is that it goes, Spider-Man, <laughs> Spider-Man, friendly neighborhood, Spider-Man, Spider-Man. A great theme. I think we're even. You, you, you made me sing Rent last week, so I think this week we're good. This is a, this is a very, this is going to be a lot of singing in this podcast, apparently. Oh, it's not even friendly neighborhood. It's radioactive. I knew the syllables were wrong. <laughs> anyway, so there's a lot of, there was Spider-Man cartoons, but there was nothing easy to access on the page. Enter the ultimate Marvel universe. This is Marvel's attempt at resetting everything without losing the old fans. The plan? Two concurrent universes. The 441s, the amazing Spider-Man 441, keeps going, goes to 442, 443, whatever. He can go on forever. But the ultimate universe starts at issue one. And most importantly, it is centering the year 2000. In this ultimate universe, Peter Parker is a high schooler in the year 2000, not in 1968. It's all brand spanking new. This is a reboot with a capital R. Every bit of the Marvel Universe is being reset. Professor X and Magneto are meeting for the first time. The Fantastic Four just gone into space. Captain America just cracked out of the ice. And Peter Parker, poor old Peter Parker, is still knocked about the corridors of his New York City public high school. Nat, does this sound pretty familiar? It's all the MCU, right? Exactly. The MCU pulls most of its stories from the Ultimate Universe because it's the most convenient, clear starting point for anyone. Yeah. Nat, you've mentioned a couple times that you find comics too complex. It's true. Right, that there's too much to follow. The Ultimate Universe was made for you because this is the jumping on point. You don't need to know anything. The first book that launches the Ultimate Universe... And probably the best book that comes out of the Ultimate Universe is Brian Michael Bendis's and Mark Bagley's Ultimate Spider-Man. Now today, Brian Michael Bendis is maybe one of the most famous comic book writers of our era. He's written everything. He's written Superman. He's written Spider-Man. He's written Daredevil, Batman. And his signature dialogue reshaped the landscape of comic books. But in the year 2000, he was not a superhero guy. In the 90s, Bendis was printing zines. He was drawing and writing his own stories and bringing these comics to like places and being like, sell those for me. And that got him the attention of Marvel. 
the artist, Mark Bagley, was a bit more of a known quantity. He was already working in Marvel. He had already worked on some of the amazing Spider-Man stuff. The unknown quantity was Bendis. Bagley, actually, this is a bit of trivia, didn't want to work on the book because he didn't know if it would sell. So they decided to try it just to see what happens. And it's a rough start. Bendis is used to doing his own thing. Bagley has said that he gave a script that was 60 pages long because he was used to drawing his own stuff. So trying to explain that to someone else was just this difficult process. One of the pages, and so you've seen how big a comic book page is. Bagley has said that in that 60-page script, one of the descriptions was a two-page spread, which had 50 panels. And Bagley says to Bendis, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so I've talked a little bit about Bendis' dialogue. Okay, and we're gonna do it now, so I can, so you can understand what it sounds like and what it looks like. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, so Nat, I just sent you something, and we're gonna read this to explain to you what Bendis speak is. So I'm Y and you're N. Yeah, in I, case I, you needed I that figured. To be clarified. No, no, I figured. Bendis speak is this kind of Bendis speak. Yeah, Bendis speak by Brian Michael Bendis. We're going to do this again because you are just hamming it up. I don't know what. What did I, I say? Just do it fast. Do it fast. Oh, it has to be fast. Okay, I'll try again. You, you didn't give me any notes. Okay, fast. Got it. Bendis Speak is this kind of. Bendis Speak? Yeah, Bendis Speak. By Brian Michael Bendis? Yeah, him. Three names? Yeah, Brian Michael Bendis. So what is it? Well, it's when the dialogue gets broken up. Broken up into parts? Yeah, sure. But it keeps moving forward incrementally. But slowly. Slowly. But you can hear it. That is Bendis Speak. So we talked about how Saka could be read out loud, but Bendis speak can also be read out loud. It just sounds very, very different because Bendis was pulling a lot from playwrights. He stated one of his big personal heroes is David Mamet, who does a lot of this type of dialogue in his you know, seminal play, um, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. It's the kind of thing you just know it when you're reading it. And now because of Bendis's prevalence and how huge an influence he has, it's almost seen as a shtick. In comic books, it's been parodied and mocked and critiqued but in this particular moment, in this cultural moment, in the year 2000, it is perfect for Ultimate Spider-Man for this New York City public high school where Peter Parker's going to class. It's bringing something fresh. It feels new. And that's exactly what Marvel is looking for. And that's the distinction, one huge distinction that we have to make between Saga and Ultimate Spider-Man and a bunch of the different books, right, is that Marvel is looking for this. This is not a creator-owned comic like Saga, where Brian K. Vaughn has this idea, develops this idea, and goes to the company. This is Marvel wants to do this, and they are looking for people to do it for them. Bendis and Bagley are being hired to make this comic. That doesn't make it any cheaper or of less value, but it does complicate the creative process. Because now there's an editor who's going to help you and sometimes turn your ideas down. Because it's not in line with what they want from the book. And there's a publisher who's going to be thinking about the bottom line. This book has to sell. Ultimate Spider-Man sells like hotcakes. It flies off the shelves. And it's easy to chalk it down to the business of it all, right? That it's, you know, giving aspiring comic book readers an opportunity to jump in. Plus, cynics would point out that the Tobey Maguire, Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie was due to arrive in two years. Right? So there's hype about Spider-Man now. But that's also a disservice to the book itself. Because this isn't the first time that they've tried to reboot Spider-Man. In 1998, just two years before, they released Spider-Man Chapter 1 by John Byrne, written and illustrated by John Byrne, a retelling of the original story from the 60s, updated for the modern era. This was actually my first Spider-Man comic, was Spider-Man Chapter 1. 
And I'm kind of shocked to look at it now because when I was reading it, I assumed it was from the 60s because the book reads exactly like that. Barely anything has changed other than the art style. The tone is the same, the setting the same. The small differences are little things like Dr. Otto Octavius being there when the spider bites Peter. Like it's really tiny things. It's 1968 all over again. Really long chunks of dialogue, an omniscient narrator. Frankly, it's artistically pretty bland, right? Not saying whether it's good or bad. It's, it just feels a little stale because it's not taking any risks. Bendis and Bagley are doing something scary. They're taking a hammer to the foundations and they're making it their own. It's going to read modern, which is a huge thing, despite only being two years after chapter one. In this first issue, there's a lot of humor and heart. You feel for Peter Parker. You understand him. When Mary Jane puts her hand on his shoulder, you are excited for him. It's a book of empathy, a core tenet of Peter's character that is driven, oddly enough, by silence. I've talked a lot about how verbose Bendis is and how much there's a lot of talking and talking and overlapping dialogue. But in Ultimate Spider-Man, issue one, there's a lot of silence. He knows when to let Bagley's work tell its own story. There's something sweet about the smiles between the silent panels, the way we can imagine Peter's thoughts without the thought bubbles of old, just by the way he's looking at Mary Jane. The noisiest people are his bullies, and because of that, they're the most disruptive to the calm. We don't empathize or connect with them because we hear them speaking. Not Peter. Peter is quiet. Peter is like us, silently reading the book. The book doesn't just do things for the new fans. It also does something for the old. Do you know what dramatic irony is, Nat? I do. Or at least I think I do. It is when Let's the hear. audience knows something that the characters do not. That is exactly it. We know what happens to Peter. We know he becomes Spider-Man. We know what happens to that spider that starts the opening pages. And we know what happens to Uncle Ben. But we don't know exactly how it's going to play out. We can see the pieces being laid out. And we know in some sense the man Peter Parker is going to become. The Spider-Man. Friendly neighborhood. Quipping. Kind. The best guy around despite having the worst luck. And that's what Ultimate Spider-Man captures so well. Right? What Bendis and Bagley found in this editorial mandate to make the old new. There's the aesthetic differences, the fact that it's in the 2000s, that they've got flip phones, that Norman Osborn now turns literally into a green goblin. But emotionally, that same kid that people fell in love with in the 60s, that dopey, nerdy, scrawny kid who wants to do right by others, that's still there. That's what makes Peter Parker Spider-Man, ultimate or otherwise. That was great. That was a, that was a great yant, yen. That was, yen, great yant. Thanks for the praise on my yant, Nat. On my yant from yen. <laughs> I think before I start reading yen, I think you got to come clean. I think you owe the listeners the truth. Because last week, you made a very explicit statement, a very explicit claim that you would only make me read physical versions of the comics. Oh, it's true. It's true. We've sinned. It is we in black sinned. and white. But today, shamefully oh. for you, I hold in my hands an iPad. It's a deep, deep source of shame for me. Deep source of shame. And we're only two episodes in. We're only two episodes <laughs> in and we already failed <laughs> we that We already promise. failed. I really wanted Nat to read the physicals of this, but we just, you know, we flubbed. We couldn't figure out the logistics and I couldn't get my hands on a physical copy. Could I have gone to the libraries, which we so uh, lovingly and enthusiastically praised last week? I could have, but I didn't. 
Well, here's the thing. We actually couldn't have because I already looked this up. Oh. National Library of Singapore has Ultimate Spider-Man, but because of its insane popularity, you can almost never find volume one of Ultimate Spider-Man in the library. You have to put yourself on the wait list for like 20 people down before it can ever end up in your hands. Wow, that's really surprising to me. I did not expect that. Yeah. So, you know, we tried. Uh, and today we'll be reading a digital copy, but we encourage you, if you are joining me in this next section where I proceed to read, well, what am I reading exactly, Yen? Am I reading, is this a floppy? So this would be a floppy. This is the first floppy for Ultimate Spider-Man. And as a note to everybody, if you want to read Ultimate Spider-Man, it's Marvel knows that it's a very easy entry point. So you can find it free on many different platforms, including Kindle. Most libraries, if you have a digital service on your library, you'll be able to get the ebook. Shall we dive into it? Let's go. Ultimate Spider-Man Volume 1. Power and Responsibility. His muscles are very defined. Osborne's hair is so red. <gasps> the spider escapes. But the close-up on its butt to look like eyes? Oh, I wasn't expecting Peter Parker to look like this. What is this? Peter Parker crossed with Harry Potter? <laughs> Why is he wearing these glasses? All the characters are so buff. Such defined muscles. Flying taco! Damn, wingman Uncle Ben! See you on the flip mode. That's a cool catchphrase. Why are you talking about him when he's right there? Aunt May, that's not very nice and sensitive. Oh, Peter's coy smile as he looks over the rim of his glasses. Weirdly sexual. Oh my god, the bite is so public. And they, he just went back home on the school bus? Did he even get an ambulance? He fainted! No, he's only 15. He's very buff for a 15-year-old. In fact, all his classmates are very buff for 15-year-olds. Oops, sticky fingers. He's climbing. He's on the ceiling! To be continued. And I am back! That was a fun read. You had fun? You had fun? fun is the word I'd go with here. And that's the operative principle. I feel like that's what it's trying to do. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I enjoyed it as much as Saga, and I'm going to try not to refer to, to that too much, but you know, that is my point of reference. I didn't enjoy it as much from an artistic perspective, but it was a fun read. There's this tweet that um, the tweet is guy who's only ever seen Boss Baby watching any other movie. And then he says getting a lot of Boss Baby vibes from this. That's going to be you for the rest of this part until we get enough mass behind you that you can refer to things other than Saga. It took us two episodes for you to reference Boss Baby. He's my nemesis. I will kill the Boss Baby. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> I will kill the Boss Baby. So did you see Bendis speak? I did. I did. Uh, if, if you didn't point it out, I don't think it would have stood out to me. To me, if I'm being honest, that is comic speak in my head. There's a reason for it. Yeah. There's a reason that's comic speak for you because... Bendis did it here. You talked about the facial expressions in your little doopy-doo. Yeah. I think that contributed to a lot of the fun. I was surprised by how tightly they cropped into the face. I mean, some of them, they really got, they really got in there. Like, you, know, you could see the pause. There's that two-page spread where Harry goes to Peter in his lab. And, okay, if we're, if we're theorizing, I think this is the page that Bendis wanted to be 50 panels. And Bagley said no. But somehow Bagley still makes it work in this page. And I think it's got to do with that cropping where he's capturing the most important part of that facial expression. 
Yeah, so okay, I'm looking at that two-page spread now. Those those narrow, narrow panels. Super, super narrow, right? They're narrow and they're long. One of them is just an eye. Yep, but what is that eye telling you, right? It's telling you everything you need to know about Peter. It's capturing the most essential information in that tiny, tiny little space. Yeah, it's a lot. It's saturated. It's saturated, right? This is a very dense page. This is why I think it was the 50-panel thing. But then how does this, this two-page spread end? With Peter standing in front of a whiteboard in a spotlight, spotlight on him <laughs> dramatic spotlight alone right we've gotten a clutter of images the words and everything and all this dialogue and everything and suddenly we come to this moment and we're slowing down on this grid on this panel right and it's peter by himself and if you look at a lot of the pages that's how a lot of them a lot of the bottom right of pages across this book end in silence i, I was gonna say it's cinematic almost but then it's actually not cinematic because you wouldn't see a spotlight like that appear in a movie. So actually, I'm more inclined to say it's almost theatrical. Yeah, it is theatrical. And I do think it is safe to say that Bendis has a lot of theatrical tendencies, right? Yeah. Already with the dialogue, that's part of it. But it's also the, you know, a little, I don't want to say melodrama, but accentuating moments. I was going to say, it's like high drama to me. Yeah, it's high drama, right? And it's, you are used to a scene ending on something like that in a, in a, in a play. Right? Yeah. of a character by themselves spotlight on them. But if that were to happen in a movie, everyone would be like, oh, come on, we get it. <laughs> Who installed this spotlight? <laughs> There's something about the comic that allows that accentuation. I want to push back on that a little bit. Does it Does it really? I mean, to, okay, I'll be honest, I, I don't know if it works for me. Like I said, I had fun reading this, but maybe part of it is also like, it's a bit too melodramatic, a bit too theatrical for me. And maybe that's just, that's just a personal preference. It's not my vibe. I mean, but you know, when you said, oh, comics allow for that, it makes me think, does it really? I mean, it allows for it in a sense that it's here and it was published and, and people apparently love it, but I don't know. I'm not necessarily convinced. Well, you know what my response to that is going to be? What? I wish we were reading this physically. What difference do you think that would make? Because these are the because you can't tell it on the digital one, but those are the panels before the page turn. Right, right. But I was reading it one page by one page. I wasn't scrolling. But still, you can't tell which one is the left and which one's the right. I see, I see. Right, so you can't tell what, what's on the spread. But how does that mitigate the, the melodrama that I'm not necessarily appreciating? I think because it, you slow down on that moment. Right, the physical act of turning the page. The physical act of turning the page demands that you slow down a little bit at that moment. And the act of slowing down lends itself to the melodrama is what you're suggesting. It lends itself to the melodrama. It lends itself to closing the scene off neatly before you go to the next one. Mm, mm. I want to talk about Peter Parker. Let's talk about Peter Parker. So we're talking about rebuilding your heroes, right? Do you see, question, do you see him wear the Spider-Man costume in this issue? Nope, not Do you see it anywhere in this issue outside of the cover? No, I do not. It takes six issues to tell the origin story that Stanley and Steve Ditko told in one. So in the original Spider-Man issue, by the end of that issue, he's wearing the costume. Actually, he's wearing the costume at the start, and then he's explaining how he got there. Right, right. That's Amazing Spider-Man 1. That's, that's not his first appearance, but that's the first issue of Amazing Spider-Man. And here, we are languoring. We are taking our time. I mean, that's what the dramatic irony affords you, right? Because the audience sort yeah. of like knows, you know, so we can take our time to get there. And it's, that's, that's the interesting thing about it, right? Is that we already know this is a culturally important character when we're reading this. Yeah. Would we have this same level of patience if we didn't know he was going to wear the Spider-Man costume? A hundred percent no. Right? So so would the things like the sticky fingers, would you go, oops, sticky fingers? <laughs> if you didn't, if Spider-Man wasn't something that existed in your mind, you'd be like, well, okay, I guess that's something. Yeah. 
right? But a lot of the the pacing and the, the the rhythm of this would be very different if we didn't know who Spider-Man was. And what you're saying is that they they wrote it with the understanding that people knew. Exactly. That's what I that's exactly what I mean. And this is why it's like rebuilding is acknowledging what has come before. The story's already been told and now we're going to be concerned about how we get there. So Nat, did you connect with this version of Peter Parker in these pages? Define connect. Did you care? Did you care? And I think, you know, we can point to the moments, right? When he flips Kong in the hallway, when he, after he gets his spider powers and the bully comes up and sweeps his foot up behind him and Peter flips him, were you like, yes? Or were you like, okay, that's all right. I think what's so tricky about this is that we've seen this story be told so many times that it's not surprising anymore. I want to say that if I was reading this for the first time and and I'm sort of projecting to this hypothetical universe, right, where I've I've not encountered... it's the multiverse of madness. (laughs) I'm facing my fears. But no, like, I think I'm fairly positive that I would be rooting for Peter, right? That would really be like a yes, fist-clenched moment. But it's just the reality that we've just been, or at least I have been so saturated with this story so many times that that moment, like I knew it was coming from like three panels before. You know what I mean? It was hard to put Mm -hmm, myself mm -hmm. in a position where I was genuinely surprised by it. I think, no, that's a really valid point because Ultimate Spider-Man was written during a specific context, right? If they were going to reboot Spider-Man in the comics now and do this high school story again, it would have to be different. Because like you said, you are filled to the brim with, you know, all the stories of Peter Parker's life, cultural osmosis, all of that. I mean, that's literally the reason why in Tom Holland's versions, they just skipped the origin story almost entirely. And that's the reason why Miles Morales is so huge. Yeah. Because he allows us to experience the high school life of Peter through a different character, through a different context, with a different environment. Miles Morales is a Bendis creation for the Ultimate Universe. Because... Like every other story, right? Ultimate Spider-Man at one point was over 100 issues long. And it was no longer the jumping in point it was. Right. You could not get into it. It, it encountered the exact it same It became problem. the very thing it swore to destroy. Yeah. <laughs> so he, so Miles Morales comes in. And Miles Morales, but that's also a bit, that's selling Miles Morales as a character short too, because he's a, he's a great character that is doing more than just providing a launching off point, I think was maybe one of Bendis' biggest contributions to superhero comics is making Miles Morales and Ultimate Spider-Man. I love Into the Spider-Verse. That might be one of my favorite... It didn't favorite... make you quake? No, 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 no. no. Like I said, it, it, was a, it was a nice and easy gateway into the notion of the comic multiverse. One of my favorite movies of all time, I'd say. It's a great one. It's a great one. Yeah. So actually, I, I have a question for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yeah. turn the tables on you. Oh my goodness, my goodness gracious. I'm quaking now. <laughs> In the context of, you know, the quote-unquote objective of this podcast, why did you pick this, knowing that I had all this existing knowledge about Spider-Man and, and that would sort of color my interpretation of, of reading this comic? What did you want me to get out of this? Honestly, Nat, I didn't expect you to know anything about Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? Come Dude, on, you are man. so forgetful. Dude, you forget everything. Come you forget, on. You, you, if I asked you to talk about what we talked about at the start of this podcast, you definitely could not do it. <laughs> no, but actually, right. The, the thing is, is that this is, honestly, in terms of comic books, in my opinion, historical. Right. This is a watershed moment in modern comic book storytelling. And so I didn't 
need you to be learning something new from it. I didn't need you to be reading it and being like, oh man, this is so different. Because, like I said, this is like you said. Looking at this, you're like, well, isn't this just how comics look? Right. Yeah. It's historic. It's huge, and it's one of the best there is. The Ultimate Spider-Man, run by Brian Michael Bendis and Mark Bagley, is one of the longest collaborations between two creators on any superhero comic book. And it starts right here. And it starts right here. And length is one thing, but it also goes that long because it's that high quality. And then it becomes this tremendous book because that's what it is. It's, it's tremendous. It's huge. Not in terms of its like scale, but in terms of its impact. Its storytelling is actually pretty micro. It's pretty like grounded in just people dynamics. Mm. But the impact it has on the whole industry is huge. And that's why I want you to read it. So you know what comes. And I think part of what, and this is the, this is the complicated thing about it, because you have all this osmosis, all this cultural osmosis filtering into your brain, right? Is part of why I wanted you to read this is so that you could see where so much of that comes from. Because all of the movies are working from Ultimate Spider-Man. No, I, d- I definitely appreciate that. I definitely see that, yeah. And I definitely leave today with a much deeper and I guess more historically accurate appreciation of it. And I think the other thing is because we keep talking about the convoluted and how difficult it is to get into comic books, Yeah, I wanted you to see the most serious attempt that a company ever did at fair. trying to get people yeah, in. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Mm. And when I say serious, I mean, there's also the New 52. There's other things involved, but this is the one where I think it does the best job of it. And I want to, before we close up, before we close up, before I ask you, I want to let you know what happens in Ultimate Spider-Man and the Ultimate Universe. Uncle Ben dies. Well, Uncle Ben dies. But beyond that, right, it ends up becoming so convoluted. Miles Morales comes in. It goes on for hundreds of issues. Captain America becomes the president of the United States of America, which also segments into different states. One of them is run by mutants. And it's just this whole grand thing that eventually Marvel realizes has become, the, like you said, the beast it wanted to slay. But they can't lose some of these characters, and so they collapse them together. And so there's this big event, and the Ultimate Universe gets destroyed, and some of them slip into the mainline universe, which is why Miles Morales is in the main Marvel comics now. When does this happen? This happens in 2015 to 2016. This is in an event called Secret Wars. But you see, that's the thing. It's not the entry point that is elusive and intimidating to me. I mean... Maybe it was elusive before, but now you have shed light on it and now it is no longer elusive. I know the entry point, right? Right. It's where I know it gets up to. This, yeah. this insane, like you have, you have admitted, this complicated, convoluted world that even the creators admit has gone too far. To me, having that knowledge makes me not want to get into it because I'm like, even if I know what the start point is, why do I want to get to there? I think it goes back to the, what we were talking about when we were reading this issue. Which is, you said that reading this issue was fun. Right. Right. We don't need to think about what happens. We can just enjoy it as it's happening. And that's a different, that's difficult to know sometimes. You're going to read this thing and you go, okay, in a hundred issues, this is just going to collapse and it's not going to matter. Yeah, that's true. It matters because you read it and you enjoyed it. Mm. We, we determine our own matter. We are, we are the other creators of the comic books when we're reading them. And so that's going to take me to our closing questions now. I'm ready. Question one. Do you see the value in Ultimate Spider-Man? Now, are you asking me about this issue this specifically? This issue specifically. But also, I'm kind of curious to hear what you think in terms of the project. 
I think all the context you provided me today was incredibly helpful and incredibly useful in framing the historical and cultural significance of The Ultimate Spider-Man, this issue, and the project. And I think now having that knowledge, I definitely see the value in understanding how it has influenced and informed nine <laughs> movies and so much more, you know, other cultural content relating to Spider-Man. I think just that understanding of this singular launching off point, I think it's pretty cool. But your second question is going to be... My second question, which I feel like we both know the answer to. Would you keep reading? And to everyone's surprise, yes, no. I I don't... <laughs> oh, you... you <laughs> I didn't like that at all. That really messed me up. I thought it was really yes for a second. I think a big part of it is the fact that I feel this story is is so saturated in my mind. You know, maybe if you gave me the origin story of, of a more obscure superhero, which I understand would not necessarily fulfill the same role that you were intending with this episode and the historical significance. But that aside, just addressing the second question, if you had given me the origin story of a more obscure superhero that I really had no knowledge about, that might have actually piqued my interest to go and read more. But just the fact that I knew so much already, kind of like... Okay, that was fun. Do I really want to keep reading about how he makes his suit and then, you know, learns that he can climb up a building and then he does the big jump across another building? I don't know. Fair. But hey, hey, I appreciate Fair. the effort. I appreciate the yant. And I, I'm glad. And I'm glad. Thank you. And I'm glad that I read that today. That's nice. That's nice to hear. What you're describing, Nat, is origin story fatigue. Mm. That's how I feel about so many of the Marvel movies, too. We are seeing the same type of story, right? Even though the character may change, right? Ostensibly, the plot to Doctor Strange 1 and Iron Man 1 are identical. There are only seven kind of stories, Yen. One of them is a superhero origin story. <laughs> and in that one, yeah. Uncle Ben dies. No, but I think it's a valid it's a valid point. And we're going to, through this podcast, try and see if we can find an origin that excites you and excites me. And I look forward to that journey. So Nat, Nat we've done the exciting creator-owned book, new modern com comic book saga. We have now looked at a seminal superhero origin story. Next week, and I'm scared about this, next week we are going to go you're into... You're scared. I'm scared, I'm scared. I, I have no idea how you're going to respond to this. We're going to go into... Maybe one of the most famous comics of all time, Sandman. I'm going to take a look at Sandman. Ooh. And I have no idea how you're going to respond. I'm fully prepared. I, maybe we should have a first aid kit on hand for you, just in case. For you or for just me? Just in case. For you. Oh, for me too. Yeah, we I think both of us. It. That'd be a good idea. Yeah, yeah. This has been Comic Sans. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you on the next page. See ya. Thanks for listening to Comic Sans. This is an Andas Productions show hosted by Ma Yente and Nathaniel Ma and produced by Roshan Singh Sambi. Our cover art is by Isabel Fang and marketing by Siobhan Lek. Follow us on social media at the links in the description and stay tuned for weekly releases of our 8-episode first season.